Thanks, Philip. Well, it is amazing how God has been at work in our church and even just uh, the wardens that he's provided us for this time. As we think about buying a property, uh, we have a warden who's a lawyer, we have a warden who's an accountant, and we have a warden who's a builder. That is a perfect combination, but I know that you realise there's something missing, uh, an arts graduate, and hey, that's me. So um, uh, we've got the, the full set, so we're all good to go. As we continue our series, Northmead Refresh, Today I want to talk to you about the idea that Christ's majesty and glory and divinity clearly and powerfully demand that we trust him and treasure him. But what Christ demands of us, he also enables and empowers and inspires in us by giving us his Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking at today. So why don't we pray as we come to listen to our great God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us your Son, the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise, our adoration for all time. And Father, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we might know Jesus and know you through him. And we pray that right now we would encourage one another, we'd listen and learn and grow to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, during Jesus' ministry, there are moments, there are encounters where people really get who Jesus is. They really grasp the significance of Jesus. Like when he first meets the disciples and simply says to a bunch of them, follow me, I will make you fish for people. And straight away, they drop everything. They leave everything behind. They leave their jobs, their neighborhoods, their family, their community, their possessions, their money, everything, and they go with Jesus because life with him is better. His mission and his purpose is greater. His promises are true. They get it. And so they leave everything behind for him. Or in Luke 17, there's this time where 10 men with leprosy call out to Jesus from a distance They can't come close because they have this terrible skin disease. In society, they are rejected, they are outcasts, they're considered unclean. But they shout out to Jesus from a distance and beg him to help them. And he sends them on their way. But as they go, they are instantly healed. Instantly, they're washed clean. The disease is just gone. They're made whole and restored by Jesus' power. But only one of those ten men turns back and goes back to Jesus to thank him. In fact, he falls at Jesus' feet. He falls face down before him and praises him. And Jesus is like, weren't there ten men healed? Why did only this one man, a foreigner, return to give glory to God? Well, because he got who Jesus is. More than someone who solves your problem and then you just go about doing your own thing until you have another one. He is someone, Jesus is someone you want to be around and you want to worship because he's worthy of our thanks and our praise. I mean, it's the same thing with Zacchaeus, who he meets Jesus, invites him into his home and then starts giving his money away. Or the sinful woman who knows Jesus and washes his feet with her hair because she knows forgiveness through Jesus. See, when you really know Jesus, when you have experienced his love 
and been blessed by his grace and enjoyed his kindness and been filled with his saving power and forgiveness, then the right and natural response is more than just a simple acknowledgement, a nod of the head, and then you go back to whatever you were doing. It calls for more than intellectual assent. I believe Jesus is real. When you grasp the majesty and the glory of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes our motives and our priorities and what we live for. See, if you are a Brussels sprout farmer, and I know that's up there as one of the most aspirational life goals you can dream of. I was just trying to think, what's the most useless vegetable? Maybe chocos or turnips. Um, we, we, you, you can tell me, someone's going to love Brussels sprouts, and I'm going to get it on the connection card this week. Anyway, I apologise to that one person. Um, but we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. But you're a Brussels sprout farmer. Most popular job in the world. As you're digging up the field to plant some more of those delectable lumps of flavourless sproutiness, you're doing it, but you hit a whopping great gold nugget. It's huge. In fact, laid throughout the field, they're just everywhere. You keep finding them all over the place. Now, would you forget that the God was there and just go back home and get on with life? Would you think, oh, well, that's shiny, and then cover it back over and keep planting everyone's favourite vegetable to boil into mush? I don't think you would. You would very quickly turn from a Brussels sprout farmer into a gold miner, wouldn't you? Everything would change when you have discovered something far better, far more valuable. It's like that when you come to know Jesus. When you discover the truth about Jesus, whatever you were doing before... It's actually now all about him. It's not just an interesting fact that he died on the cross for our sins and turned aside God's anger. It's not just an interesting detail that he rose and conquered death. It's not just a fascinating piece of history or a familiar advertising jingle. Knowing Jesus inspires us, fills us with passion, fills us with purpose, fills us with courage to live God's new way. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus spends time traveling along the road with some of his disciples who are confused and they're completely thrown by what's happened over the last few days. They don't even recognize who Jesus is. They've seen him die a few days before. But he walks with them and he explains to them God's word written down for us in the scriptures so that they can understand it. He opens their minds by opening the scriptures and afterwards they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and revealing the scriptures to us? You see, that's the right response to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Their hearts were burning. They were on fire hearing the truth of God's spectacular promises and his epic eternal plans, and that Jesus dying and rising reveals God's saving grace. Again, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter, having received the promised Holy Spirit, the spirit of the resurrected and ascended Jesus is sent upon him and the other disciples to preach the good news of Jesus, Peter stands up and preaches all about Christ. And as a result, 3,000 people respond and turn to Jesus that day. But they don't simply go, oh yeah, that sounds right. And then they go home and think to themselves, well, that was a nice day. That was quite enjoyable. It was a pretty good speech. Now listen to what they do. 
those people who've come to know Jesus from Acts chapter 2, 42, she'll be up on the screen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together at the temple, and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You hear that? that they've heard Jesus' message of saving power to forgive them, to conquer death, and they've heard his call to turn to him. And as a result, they've devoted themselves. They gave themselves. They threw their whole selves into this new life and into this new community. When you grasp the enormity of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, there is a freedom to be wholehearted and unashamed and completely committed. All in. When you know your sins and your past have been completely forgiven and you know your future, your eternity is perfectly secure. Then you give your all for Jesus. And a few chapters after this in Acts 7, we find Stephen willing to die for the truth of the gospel, willing to give his life for the Lord Jesus and he is filled with peace at the thought of it. Because at the end of chapter 7, he looks and he sees heaven open for him. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne, waiting to receive him home. And his last words are breathtaking. First, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knows Jesus is about to welcome him home, welcome him into God's presence, into the presence of the Holy One. He knows that even as he is being rejected and killed on earth, he actually rests safe in God's hands and belongs with him forever. He's confident. He trusts in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. But then in even more evidence of how passionately committed he is to Jesus, how at peace he is with losing his own life for Jesus, and how everything is all about the kingdom, Stephen finally cries out with a loud voice, his final words... Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See, he not only prays for his own life and resurrection, not trusting in Jesus, he prays that the very men killing him would also experience the love and forgiveness and salvation Jesus has. That is extraordinary. And remember, Stephen wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't one of the great ones. He wasn't, this wasn't even his official job to preach the gospel. He was an administrator. But first and foremost, he was a Christian. He loved the Lord Jesus. So he preached the gospel of Jesus and he stood up for the gospel because he knew Jesus. And that knowledge filled him and overflowed from him with wholehearted devotion and love and yes, even sacrifice. But how could he do this? How could he be so confident and selfless and full of peace facing death. How could Peter stand up and be so bold in front of an enormous crowd of people who had a month before 
crucified Jesus with the same message. And then how could those people who respond at the end of the day and decide to devote themselves to Jesus, they start sharing their lives and their food and their homes and God's word with people who up until that moment were total strangers? Well, again, it's because they'd come to know the glory and the power and the majesty of Christ. See, they don't need to be coerced into these things. They don't do these things begrudgingly or reluctantly or out of a sense of religious obligation. In fact, no one particularly told them to do these things. They were completely willing. It came out of a heart, a desire and a passion given to Christ. You see, to know Christ is to be passionate for Christ, devoted to Christ, committed to Christ and to love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And another way of saying this, the way they were able to do these things is they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who enables us to know Jesus and to respond rightly to Jesus. You know, just before Stephen's final words, glorifying Christ, the verse before Acts 7.55 says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit looked up and saw the Lord standing at the right hand of God. Just before Peter's remarkable sermon all about Christ at Pentecost, in Acts 2 verse 4 it says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Just before we read of the church devoting themselves as Christ's people, Acts 2.38, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ inspires us and empowers us and gives us courage by giving us his Spirit. We are not alone. We are never alone because we have the Spirit of Christ. This is why Jesus says, I am with you to the very end of the age. And this is the massive difference in the way people related to God in the Old Testament and how we get to relate to God now. In the Old Testament, God's law was written on tablets of stone out there. And at certain times... The Holy Spirit would come on men and women to empower them to do God's will and accomplish God's purposes. But now, for Christians, what was relatively rare and special occurrence back then, what happened only to a few and only from time to time, is now our permanent experience of God. God's law is now written on our hearts. God's word, God's will, God's desires, God's purposes are written into our deepest spiritual DNA, our innermost self. So that our thoughts and our motives and our desires are shaped by and conformed by his word. That's a massive difference in relating to God. If you are a Christian, you are full of the Holy Spirit of God. We receive the Holy Spirit and he never leaves us the moment we believe the moment we put our trust in Jesus. Which is why if you're not yet a Christian, you should become one today. Because the moment you do, God lives in you by his Holy Spirit, fills you and refreshes you and revives you and you are guaranteed eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But for us Christians... Well, maybe after months of lockdown and separation and maybe after the disappointments and failures of life, you find yourself thinking, but it doesn't feel like I'm full of the Holy Spirit. 
I don't really feel particularly passionate for Christ. Or like my heart is burning within me every time I heard the word, hear the word taught. Or like I'm about to burst into spontaneous public declaration and adoration of Jesus. It doesn't feel like it. And you know, this is something I struggled with enormously when I was growing up as a young boy. I really wanted God to love me. I really needed Jesus to forgive me. I was desperate to be accepted by God. But I never felt forgiven. I never really felt loved. I never felt good enough or Christian enough for him. And I would pray all the time for God to save me and to change me and finally to fix me. But I just couldn't get around the reality that deep down, I knew I wasn't worthy of his love. There's no way he could love someone like me. And I kept doing the things that I hated doing. And the reality is there's deep truth in that, isn't there? The Bible does talk about how deeply offended and angry and full of wrath God is at our rebellion against him. But like the way God usually works in his people, it was a process for me to grow up and mature both as a person and as a Christian and to work through these things over the years. But at the same time, I remember one night in particular, vividly, when I was maybe 13... I remember being outside and looking up at the night sky and being filled with the most amazing feeling of being loved and forgiven and accepted by God. It was spectacular. But you know what led up to that moment? I had just heard the Bible taught. I had just heard the cross of Christ proclaimed. I had just had grace presented to me clearly and I'd just been told my feelings were not what saved me and my failures were all taken care of. My salvation and my worth was based on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and not how I felt about it. It was liberating. And I loved the irony of having those joyful feelings and that amazing response unlocked and unleashed in me the moment I realized my feelings didn't matter. It wasn't about my feelings. Jesus, the Son of God, died for me. It was, it was a beautiful moment. And as Christians, life is up and down. Our feelings will be up and down. Our experience of church, every other church other than Northmead, will be up and down. <laughs> there will be moments of pain and times of joy and everything in between. But be assured, God's perfect, unconditional love expressed perfectly in Jesus dying on the cross, will never change. We often assess church, don't we? We often judge a sermon on how it made us feel. I want to say, if you feel good, that's the icing on the cake. But did it do you good, is the question. Did you do others good by being here? Sometimes our feelings aren't the most reliable indicators of reality and especially of God's everlasting love for us. I mean, sometimes medicine tastes terrible, but it's doing amazing things in us. And when you think about it, a crying, squirming child and a happy, snug baby are both just as safe, just as protected, just as loved in their parents' arms. And they will both be carried home safely, even if their experience is different. That's like us. On our best days, or on our worst days, 
We remain in God's powerful hands because God's powerful spirit remains in us. He's not going anywhere. So putting the feelings aside to the, for the moment, let me remind you of what is true and what you can trust. This is what Ephesians 1.13 says, again up on the screen. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And when you also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, you are filled with God's Spirit with a fullness that is measured by God's love and Christ's majesty and not by our experience. You are sealed and protected by His Spirit. You are guarded and guaranteed eternal life. The inheritance of the new creation, resurrection from the dead, is real and true, guaranteed. Notice Ephesians 1.13, none of this second blessing stuff some churches talk about. Where after a while of being a Christian, you then get an extra dose of the Spirit marked by speaking in tongues. No, none of this idea that you don't get the Holy Spirit until you do some baptism or some tradition or something in their particular church. No, very simply, when you heard, when you believed, you were sealed in Christ. There's no safer place to be in the universe than in Jesus, sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is what God's word assures us of again and again. We've been given the spirit of holiness so we can resist sin. We've been given the spirit of truth so that we know God personally through Jesus. We have the spirit of sonship so we call God Father. And we know we belong with him in heaven. We've been given the spirit of comfort and assurance he groans with us and for us when we don't even know what to pray. And we have the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and sound judgment. The reason I've called this talk, Christ inspires us, is because the word inspire literally means to breathe in. It actually comes from the original word for spirit. In the original language, biblical languages, the spirit is the same word as breath, same word as wind. God breathes life into us when he breathes his spirit into us and he revives us and renews us and refreshes us day by day as we breathe him in. This is how we live. Which brings us to Galatians 5 and the call to walk in the spirit, live by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. It, that passage famously describes the fruit of the Spirit. Notice it doesn't say the requirements of the Spirit or the to-do list of the Spirit. It's not the expectations or the demands of the Spirit. It's not the conditions or the fine print of the Spirit. It's not even the nine-step program to a better you of the Spirit. The Spirit is not like a personal trainer who yells at you to drop and give him 20 reps of gentleness and self-control. It describes the fruit. This is what the Spirit will produce in you as He lives and works and breathes in you. This is what God will inspire in you through His breath of life, through the Spirit of the risen Christ, working through His Word of grace 
and the word of forgiveness and love that he speaks into our heart. Now that we have God within us, then what will come out of us, what he will produce in us, is his own character and nature. Love. That's who God is. And so we'll serve others and desire to do what is best for them, just like Jesus. Peace. We won't be doubtful and complaining and whinging and grumbling. We will rest secure in God. Patience. We will bear with one another and remain confident, waiting for Christ's return. Kindness, where we treat others not as they deserve, but with mercy, goodness, where we deny our selfish inclinations and evil and we do what is right. Faithfulness where we trust in God, and so in turn, we can be trusted in. Gentleness, where we're not harsh or aggressive, but considerate and thoughtful. And self-control, where we are inspired to pursue not our own desires, but what will bring glory to God in the blessing of others. I'm not sure if you've ever thought a bit further about the fruit metaphor, but who is the fruit for? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. But who enjoys the fruit? Who receives and partakes of this particular fruit? Is it us? That I'm really enjoying how loving I am and gentle I am being? That it's actually, it's all about me? Is it for my sake that this fruit is produced? No, it's actually for God who delights in this fruit. And for others who benefit from it. Christ inspires us not to be kind of happy within ourselves, but to be like him. And be a blessing to others. And I'm no botanical expert, though I did mention Brussels sprouts as an allergy earlier, so I must be close. But I take it that fruit exists for two main reasons. Why is there fruit in the world? One, it makes more trees, doesn't it? The fruit drops and the seeds inside, and then it makes another tree, which makes more fruit and makes more, it reproduces. That's the first reason for fruit. The second is for us to eat. So Christ inspires us. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in us that will produce more and more fruit in other people's lives. This fruit is for the benefit of others and largely about how we treat others, which will delight God. And I guess I'm trying to say that the kind of deep, down in our soul, refreshing that Christ promises to bring, the rest and the deep renewal and the satisfaction and contentment and fresh refreshment that the fullness of the Holy Spirit brings is actually found in handing our lives completely over to God and giving our lives completely to His service and the service of others. But you know what else I want to say? Don't stress about it. Because with God at work in your life, with his spirit present in your heart, with Christ in control of everything and his perfect sacrifice on the cross, it will happen. I'm really not trying to say, do, hard, do more, go harder, be better. I'm saying, turn to Christ. You know, when you're learning to drive a car or learning to ride a bike, you get taught and you teach this to your kids. You go in the direction that your eyes are pointing. And so I remember, you know, kind of massive netball court and there's a bike and there is nothing except one little pole over there, and they're looking at the pole and thinking, I don't want to hit the pole, so they hit the pole. Because you go where your eyes are looking, or even as you're driving along and you kind of look at something over there and you, you turn back and you realise you've actually kind of deviated slightly. 
You've got to keep looking straight ahead. You go where your eyes are looking. Same with Jesus. If you want to be refreshed and revived and inspired, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be distracted by the things that have the spiritual and eternal significance of Brussels sprouts. Keep your eyes on Jesus and he will draw you closer to him. Because Christ's majesty and glory and divinity clearly, powerfully demand of us that we trust him and treasure him. But what Christ demands of us, he enables and inspires and empowers within us by giving us his Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us the most incredible and precious gift by giving us your Son, Jesus, to reveal who you are, to die on the cross, to rise again. And Father, you have given us the most incredible gift by giving us the Spirit of your Son to live within us and to bring us life. Father, thank you that we know you and we know how spectacular and awesome and holy and perfect you are. We pray that you would keep imprinting that knowledge into our very inner being and that from that will come the fruit that you love, the fruit that blesses others, transformed lives that bring glory to Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.